Welcome to the Community Warehouse. This is Imran Namawala, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Mr. Habib Qadri, the Community Warehouse, where we educate, learn, and lead. Habib, how you doing? Doing well, doing well. What about you? I'm, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We're, uh, we're going to have an exciting show, so just excited to get our next guest on. Um, Dr. Rachel Mahmoud is an engaging and activational speaker facilitator on topics related to equity and education, including culturally relevant instruction, culturally responsive teaching, implicit bias, minority parent involvement, and multicultural curriculum. She has a master's in, edu uh, master's in education and teacher leadership and an educational doctorate in teaching, learning, curriculum, and instruction with a focus on culturally relevant instruction. And Habib, this is an individual I believe you said you've, you've worked with, right? Yeah, I had the opportunity just uh, la this year to work with her. She was the lead of a team of a project that we worked on, and she just did a phenomenal job. So I just thought, hey, this is a community warehouse. We try to bring in some of these superstar educators and individuals and community activists uh, onto a platform. And we thought I was someone I felt like we need to get to know more about some of the amazing things that she is doing. So let's, let's get Dr. Rachel on here, because I know she's also developed this amazing framework that we're going to have to dive deeper into so uh without further ado we have dr rachel here with us hello thank you for having me great great thank you for taking your time and you know talking to us and hopefully all the viewers out there our pleasure our pleasure dr rachel it's uh, always a always a pleasure to learn from uh fellow educators and someone who is uh, someone who has a lot of wisdom in particular fields within education and we definitely want to dig into some of the things that you specialize in so habib i know you were mentioning something before our, our interview in terms of some specialty that Dr. Rachel has. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in education, especially in, 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 the, in, in the area of equity. And there's been a lot of discussion on just equity in schools, equity in the classrooms. And then you have the, like a discussion about critical race theory that's becoming a very hot topic in various districts. But I know one area that Dr. Rachel has been focusing on is culturally responsive teaching. And I thought it would be great to get a better idea like, what that is. And I thought, hey, let's bring in Dr. Rachel uh, to kind of give us a little background on what cu uh, uh, culturally responsive teaching is. And from there, we're going to ask you several other questions so we can get a better understanding. And all you viewers out there have a better understanding of how, and especially if there's any educators listening, how you can maybe learn from her. And then we'll give you some more information about her at the end of the program, or you can maybe even contact her. All right. So uh, Dr. Rachel, if you, Mahmoud, if you could just kind of give us a better idea like this, uh, this cultural responsive teaching, what is that? So um, when we're young, we actually learn a lot of information before we actually get to school. And a lot of how we learn has to do with our brain um, and the DNA and our parents um, and, and the DNA they gave us. But some of how we learn is how we're actually socialized to learn through informal environments as a kid. And that socialization is impacted by our culture. And so different cultures kind of socialize their children to learn in different ways. And um, there's kind of like a stretcher, you know, from highly individualistic cultures to highly communal cultures and everywhere in between. And if you're from an individualistic culture, you tend to learn in an informal environment in your home through individual processes. But if you're from a communal culture, you learn through communal processes and more oral storytelling and more verb and kinesthetic and movement um, in your home. 
what happens is when students get to kindergarten and they start learning what they start to see, or they, maybe they don't know this, but school has a culture of its own. And school predominantly follows an individualistic culture model, like most Western cultures, American cultures, European cultures. We put a lot of emphasis on the individual, and we're going to do some silent reading. We're going to do this activity independently. You're going to work on this worksheet, you know. And so what happens is students from communal cultures kind of get this disconnect. Because if your school culture and your home culture line up, you're going to succeed. But if your school culture and your home culture don't line up, you're going to struggle in school. So what we're seeing is that students that come from highly communal cultures and moderately communal cultures are really struggling in schools because they might be used to talking more to learn or they might be used to chanting or tapping or moving around or having movement when they learn. And if there's not space for that in our classrooms, they might be seen as problem behaviors or deviant behaviors or off-task behaviors. So what culturally responsive teaching really is, is being responsive. It's about seeing your students, knowing what backgrounds and cultures they come from, observing how they learn, and then tweaking the way that you teach or the environment of your classroom to make space for all different cultural learning styles. Nice, nice, nice. Can, can I ask a follow-up? So in terms of uh, the American context, can you give us an example of uh, when we would find there to be a clash? So can you give us like an example of someone that comes from a communal background and then the normal American context and how that, how that plays out? Absolutely, there's a lot of examples. For example, um, when the teacher asks a question, um, it is known, it's an assumption that you're supposed to wait for your turn, raise your hand, and then the teacher will call on one person to answer that question. That's a very individualistic model that one person is going to take a turn and then we're gonna wait quietly and we're all gonna to listen to that one person and then another person is gonna take a turn. In a communal culture, communication doesn't necessarily happen that way. There might be overlapping conversations, there might be shout outs, there might be affirmations given to each other. So where this disconnect may happen is a teacher asks a question and a student's really excited and they just shout out the answer. Or another student answers the question, they raise their hand, and then a student from a communal culture might be more likely to shout a response to the student who just raised their hand. So this can be seen as off-task behavior, or you need to raise your hand, or you need to wait your turn. These are examples where that clash can happen, and a teacher can say, oh, this kid is always shouting out. He doesn't know how to wait his turn. He doesn't have like good impulse control or doesn't understand how our classroom expectations work where those kind of behaviors might be much more acceptable in that child's home or how they were raised or when they go to church or in their community or how they see other adults interacting in their lives. Nice, nice. Hey, you, you, and, 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 and I know I realized that you yourself kind of put into your like own framework here, right? You know, I remember looking at, uh, even speaking to you and looking at your website, you know, this you have like this idea, like, uh, this framework, serve, verb, uh, verb, and observe. What's, you know, if you could kind of give us a little bit more about what you've kind of slowly built. Sure. So a lot of times when schools are moving to do this equity approach, they're seeing that there is some kind of disconnect. Maybe they're seeing an increase in behavior referrals from certain groups or cultures of students. Maybe they're seeing an academic achievement gap between certain groups of students and other students. Oftentimes they're seeing both. 
right? And so they say, okay, what do we have to do? What do we do to fix, to fix this? Especially after No Child Left Behind, when we can't have certain subcategories of students underperforming, we're held accountable for their students. They're no longer averaged in to the school average, but we see their scores separately. So schools are like, what do we do about this? So they start this big idea of equity work, you know, and a lot of schools like to start with, you know, what is your implicit bias? What is, you know, your cultural proficiency? How do you understand your own privilege? How do you unpack your privilege? And all of those things are absolutely necessary to doing the work to understand why and how students are underperforming or are underserved. But the thing is, is that that's a lot of deep work. And that's a lot of self-exploration. And, you know, most teachers are just not ready to do that level of heavy, you know, self-reflection and that level of deep analysis on themselves. Sometimes it can even be a roadblock to teachers. And they're like, oh, my gosh, like, this is too much. Like, I'm not ready or in a place to look at all this. Or I'm not even interested in looking at all this. And then that becomes a problem for many schools. Because when they start there and teacher, they don't have the buy-in from the teachers or even the understanding of why it's so important, um, many teachers can just put their hands up and say, you know, I'm not interested or it's too much. Or even those that are interested, they might just say, oh, my gosh, like, I'm really interested. I love all these books you're giving me. I love all these articles and everything. But then they go back into their classroom and they teach the way they've always taught. They teach the way they think is the right way to teach, raise your hand, to speak, work on this independently. Like they go back to some of the same structures that they're used to. So this was a common problem that I was seeing. I love reading empirical research, but let's be honest, you know, many people don't, right? And um, I like looking at theories and understanding theories and developing theories, but let's be honest, most teachers are practitioners. Not every teacher is going to you know, specialize in this area. So I wanted to create something for teachers that are like, it's too much for me to unpack my bias right now. It's too much for me to start that way. I'm interested in doing something, but I need to do something that's, you know, where I'm coming from, where I can start. What can I do today? And that's also a question that a lot of teachers were asking me who were even interested, who've done all of the work. They've They've read all the books and the articles and they're interested, but then they go back to the classroom and they're like, okay, now what do I change? Like in theory, all this stuff sounds amazing. It clicks with me, but then I go back and I'm like, what do I do in my practice? And so I found this little niche there where, you know, there isn't a lot of really concrete ideas for, for teachers to implement right away. And so, you know, I thought like if I could take some of the practices that I'm doing in my classroom, and some of the ideas from theory and from research and create some really practical steps for teachers who are looking to make some changes in their classroom. And so I broke it down to three um, kind of categories. So the first category is serve. And that's really about the ideas that, you know, the cultures and the backgrounds of the students. How do you build on the backgrounds of the students to make information sticky? Right. Because when we learn new information, we put it in a box in our brain and our schema. Um, sometimes, you know, if the boxes in our brain are different because our culture was different, our background and experiences are different. We get new information and we just don't know where to put it 
because we have different boxes because we were raised differently. You know, we come from a different background, a different culture. And so one is that alignment. What do we teach students? How do we tap into their culture? Verb is about how you teach, right? What does it look like in your classroom? How do you deliver lessons? Because again, our brain learns through certain processes, right? And those processes, you know, have become more efficient, but they really started from when we were younger and how we were socialized in our cultural homes to learn, right? And so when we get into the classroom, Verb is about the veritability in our environment. How do we change the way we deliver lessons so they become sticky in students' minds? How do we give it to them in a way that they can receive it and process it more efficiently and more in line with their cultural learning styles? And then the last component is observe. And observe is about getting to know your students. And great teachers, they get to know their students for sure. They know all about their hobbies and their families and their interests. But how often do we take what we know about students what we know about their culture and their, you know, and their, their cultural capital and their social capital and actually translate it to academic capital. So it's not enough just to know that my students like soccer or that they're Indian or Pakistani, right? Like, how do we use that information to make them learn more efficiently and more effectively? So Observe is about not only developing those deep, meaningful relationships with students, but teachers becoming an acute observer of their students seeing their behaviors in class, the shout outs, the movement, the orality, you know, the, the experiences, the backgrounds, their culture, their religion, and then help them to use those things, that capital, that cultural capital, and translate it to academic capital. So we'll actually see their, you know, them succeed, you know, intellectually and academically in our classrooms. Uh, only because it's on topic. There's a lot of that cool. Uh, where can we find this this training that you've created? Because it seems like you've taken a lot of research, you've summarized it, you've made it digestible for, for teachers and instructors, and you've presented it in such a way where it's very consumable. So where can we find more information about this training? So um, on my website, equityteacherleader.com, I have a lot of information about my framework. Um, I do presentations and professional development for schools. Um, I've done quite a few schools in Illinois and some across the country. Um, and yeah, and so you can get more information about my framework there. You can also see my YouTube channel where I actually uh, model some of the frameworks that I'm talking about so you can see what it looks like in my classroom. Awesome, awesome. But, but you know, so that's the framework here, right? So I mean, you are still teaching, aren't you? Yeah, I like, am. Which, which grade are you teaching? I actually teach fifth grade. Okay, and so uh, how long uh, how long have you been at the school you are, and, and what, what's kind of like the demographics of your school? So right now, I work at a school that is predominantly Latino and uh, Black, and we do have a, you know a little bit of other cultures in there as well and races. Um, about 70% of our students do qualify for a free or reduced lunch. Nice. Um, so I work in a highly diverse school and all of the practices that I share in my trainings and with teachers on my YouTube channel and through my Twitter are things that I'm doing in my classroom right now um, that have worked, that are closing the academic achievement gap in my classroom based on um, the state testing that we do in our school district and in our state. So, 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 you know, talking about this achievement gap, right, which, which plays, 
I, I know like you know, there's always that discussion, like, you know, standardized test or no, but but at the same time, there is sometimes you you used to have data points to see are kids learning, right? Are kids able to, uh, you know, understand, uh, implement, you know, practice or, or even and showcase what they've learned. So, uh, you know, just from some of the stuff that you've been doing, right? I, I think one thing I remember, you know, someone had, had told me, I think, I, or maybe had a conversation that you've seen some achievement gap even in, in your in your classroom, right? You know, you know, I know, I know you're going to be humble, but I'm, 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 I need people to know, <laughs> you know, who this Dr. Rachel is and some of the amazing things she's doing. So, like, what were some of the gaps in the, in the, when you started this kind of like thought process, and you know, and maybe just from your own modifications of your own teaching and kind of built this into a framework? You know, you know, people are like, well, does that really work? Well, how does that change? Well, what, what, can you can you tell me that some of that data has changed or not? If you could share that with the community. Absolutely. So yes, um, I do believe that we learn a lot about students through informal assessments and they can show us a lot about what they know. But I do rely on those formal assessments because those are the assessments that they're going to qualify them for college, that are going to help them, you know, through life and through different types of career testing that they take. And I want to know that what I'm doing in my classroom is actually making a difference on measures that are going to be used to measure and assess students for life. You know, and so I am an acute observer of my own data as well. And I look at a lot of different data points um, through the district testing as well as the state testing that we do. I'll give you an example. On the last IAR test, which is our state testing uh, test, our school was performing at about 20% meeting or exceeding state standards. And that was across the board, almost every grade level. So in fifth grade, where I teach 20% of students were meeting or exceeding state standards. Um, in my classroom, 50% were meeting or exceeding state standards. Of the 20 students who met or exceed, exceeded state standards in the fifth grade from our school of about 100 students, uh, 11 of them were coming out of my classroom. So just about 50% of my students for meeting or exceeding state standards when compared to their own peers in the same school. And I really believe that the reason those things were happening, that data looked different in my classroom is because I teach differently. You know, because of culturally responsive teaching, I embrace it so much and it can take our kids so very far. And hopefully closing that gap for those students is gonna take them even farther in life once they leave our classrooms. Dr. Richard, just practically in the classroom now, because it seems like you're accommodating many different learning styles and different cultures. How do you just practically manage that uh, in, in one classroom as one teacher? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. So when we're teaching, we tend to fall into like a very um, known model. There's a, a, a curriculum specialist. Her name is Madeline Hunter. A lot of people follow her framework for how to design a lesson, right? So they might say, okay, first, I'm the teacher. I'm going to give you some direct instruction, right? And then after that, we're going to practice something together. We're going to do a little shared reading or a little shared writing. You know, I might do a little guided, but slowly, slowly, I'm going to release the responsibility to you. You're going to do it independently, the assignment, and then we're going to assess you. And that's a pretty common framework for designing lesson plans. The thing we want to do in a culturally responsive classroom is we don't want like a one-size-fits-all kind of model, right? So it's not always about getting 
to the independent practice, right? Sometimes this is about getting to the communal practice. Sometimes it's about getting to a place where we can all work together on something. You know, it's about kind of mixing those components up and changing the way you teach so that there's space for all different types of cultures, individualistic and communal. For example, I gave you the example about raising your hand earlier, right? So I might say, okay, I'm gonna teach you a few hand signals today. When I do this and ask a question, I want everyone to raise their hand to answer. But when I do this, I want everyone to shout out their answer. So I might say, what's the capital of Illinois? And some, you know, I'll call on one student, you know, and then I might say, you know, what's five times seven? You know, what's three times five? You know, what's the agriculture in Illinois? So you can kind of go back and forth. Now students are sitting at the edge of their seat and they're waiting to see what the teacher's hand signal is going to be. Is it raise my hand? Is it shout out? Is it raise my hand? Is it shout out? Right. Um, I kind of tell them like I'm the orchestra of the classroom. Sometimes I want everyone to shout out. Sometimes I want you to raise your hand. Sometimes I just want that kid to shout out because he likes to talk a lot. Like you, Habib, shout it out, right? And then everybody, now raise your hand. Now back to Habib. Now everybody, now raise your hand. Raise your hand, everybody. You know, so now the level of engagement in my classroom has just gone up. Those kids that need that orality, you know, they get all these opportunities for output, right? Maybe Habib needs a little bit more orality than everyone else. He gets an extra layer of orality or a chance to share, right? Some kids, they need to be one at a time. They need to know that they were heard. They get their chance to share individually. You know, so that's like an example of how you can just make some space in a typical lesson for all those different types of communication styles and cultural learning styles. I think Dr. Rachel talked about teaching back in the days. <laughs> how did you know that? I, I, I talked a lot in class, all right? <laughs> I, have, I got those checks back in the days. <laughs> exercising self-control. <laughs> you know what, Habib? I was the same kind of student. I need to talk oh, yeah, to yeah, learn. Yeah. And if the teachers didn't make space for me to talk, I was talking to my neighbor. Uh, I was talking to my group. I was shouting out. So now when I give an assignment to a student or I say, okay, we're going to get ready on and to work on this worksheet or whatever this activity is, take two minutes and talk to the person next to you about the first two problems. Mm -hmm. Right. Instead of saying, do all of this. And then when we're done, you can check with the partner. Think about how just flipping that changes it for students. Right. The kids who need to talk through those first two problems get that opportunity. Right. And then as they build more confidence, if they want to keep talking through, let them talk through. If they're like, OK, I'm good now. I want to work alone. Let them work alone. Right. Why does it have to be a one size fits all model? I'll say, students, if you want to work at your desks, work at your desks. If you want to grab a partner and move to the outsides of the classroom, grab a partner. If you want to work in a small group and just bounce some ideas off each other, come to the middle table. We'll work as a group together. But it doesn't have to be everybody's doing it the same way. Wow. And that's huge because this is not even for educators. This is just like you know, anyone you deal with. You know, if you're if you are a project manager, you got different personalities. You got your parent. You have different kids with different styles of learning. To just even behavior modifications need to be different. So I think you know, for anyone listeners here, you know, I think it's just a great point that Dr. Rachel brought up is that 
we, you know, the idea when you can be flexible and because it's so huge, I, I deal with when you're an educator, you see a lot of people that go, when I was a young kid, I used to do this and say, well, maybe that's the way you, you're teaching the way you want to like to learn, but not everyone likes to learn the same way. So I realized when I'm a group project, but there are some individuals who are more linguistic, who are more, you know, reasoning and logic, logical, and they want it more like, you know, especially math, individuals, math, like I just want A, B, C. I don't want this big picture kind of thing. But so everyone has to be flexible and all over. So I think this is just a great reminder for all of us in any area that we do that. When we're working in teams, there is going to be different personalities and flavors and thoughts and procedures. And how do we kind of get that? And, and whoever the, the, the leader is or, or the person who's kind of, you know, uh, facilitating this orchestra, you know, needs to kind of get that going. So now I, re I really appreciate you kind of reminding us about that. And, and you know, just for our, us educators too, but all you others who are listening here at any levels, uh, I think there are some things that we could take, the gems we could take from uh, from her also. And, corporate, yeah. and also corporate America, you can maybe take some of this stuff from her too, all right? <laughs> remember, culturally responsive teaching is- In corporate America. Yeah, remember culturally responsive teaching is not just for black and brown students. Culturally responsive teaching is for everybody, right? And when we are culturally responsive educators, everybody succeeds. So it's not this idea that it's just for one group, right? Being responsive is at the heart of culturally responsive teaching. And so it's about being responsive to students' needs. It's about observing them and seeing what those behaviors are and how can I use them as an asset instead of allowing them to be a hindrance to that student in the classroom. Dr. Richard, you brought up this word equity a, a few times during during this interview. And um, so I'm going to ask you probably an obvious question, and you've touched upon this, but just to ask you very clearly, some would say, why is the conversation of equity in the classroom still being had in 2021 where access is there, right? So doesn't access guarantee like a fair shot and equity? You know what? That's a great question. Equity is something we always strive towards. Right. And so, you know, though we've made a lot of changes and a lot of improvements in education, there is still so much work to be done. And equity is about giving everybody what they need to have the same outcome, to have a successful outcome. And, you know, now and, and probably forever, as times keep changing, as technology keeps changing, as education keeps changing, as the workforce keeps changing, as societal rules, norms, and cultural norms keep changing, there's always going to be equity work to be done, right? And so it's, it's, not, it's not a place that you can get to and then say, we're here. We have our civil rights movement. We've, we've arrived, right? Because our community isn't static. Right. We're constantly evolving as a community. And every time you evolve, it creates balances and imbalances. Right. And so equity is that work to continuously strive towards balance and not by giving everybody the same thing, but by giving everybody what they need to be successful in our schools and in our communities. I can't believe it's been it's been 30 minutes. <laughs> I, I have because we have an expert on, so I have to ask. Well, hey, please, you know, I, Dr. Rachel, do, do you have a few more minutes if you guys? I have plenty of time. <laughs> It'll be the last one for me. So you you mentioned also on your website is is a mention of minority parent involvement. So obviously, as a, a son of Indian immigrants, my my family came here from India, and you know we have stereotypes in terms of the way our parents are involved as we're growing up and going through school. Parents not knowing the teachers' names, or parents not maybe even knowing what we're studying or what's what we have for homework. So what have you found in your research in terms of 
being able to get minority parents more involved. And let's also give them an excuse, right? I'm sure there are valid reasons in terms of why they why they are not involved. So can you kind of maybe touch some uh, light upon that? Absolutely. So this was actually the topic of my entire dissertation. So I have a lot of information on this. Um, but what I want to start off by saying is that every parent loves their children and are involved in their child's education. Okay. But how we are involved is very much, again, dependent on our culture and the way we were socialized to be involved and what we think is the right way to be involved or how we saw our parents to be involved. Right. And so here we come back to, again, the same idea that we were talking about earlier. School has its own culture. Right. And the culture of the school is very much the Western European individualistic, you know, culture, American culture. And there's a certain way to be involved. And that's the way we measure. And that's what we look for. Do you come to parent-teacher conferences? Do you volunteer? Do you do homework with your child? Do you, you know, um, explain problems they don't understand? Do you email the teacher? These are all culturally influenced ideas of what parental involvement means. What we find is if we go to different groups, cultural groups, and we ask those parents, how are you involved in your child's education? They come up with their own list of ways that they're involved, right? They might say, I moved to this neighborhood because I heard about great schools. At home, I'm running all of the religious education. I'm doing all the social education. I'm talking to my kids about racism. I'm talking to my kids about discrimination. I'm supporting my kids by paying for extra tutoring. I'm, you know, there's all these other things that schools don't measure. And what happens is I even just having high expectations for my child, right? Having high expectations, encouraging them, believing that they can do it. You know, um, when schools say, well, how often do you reach your child? Are you coming to parent-teacher conferences? Did you come to STEM night or all of these things? They're measuring involvement based on their school's cultural ideas of what it means to be involved. And parents are doing what they believe it means to be involved in their child's education. And when this doesn't look like this, it's often overlooked as nothing. Mm -hmm. So if the parents aren't doing what the schools expect, then they're thinking, oh, these parents aren't really involved in their kids' education. So instead of matching parents to what school deems to be appropriate forms of involvement, we as educators need to ask parents and have those discussions with them to say, how are you involved? Tell me about how you support your child's education. And when we start to understand that some of the things that they bring up are things that we don't even notice at school or don't even think about as forms of involvement, we can change the way we define parent involvement. We can make it a more inclusive definition, a more inclusive framework that accounts for all different cultural styles of being involved in children's education. And then what we come to find out, we come to see is that all parents are involved in their children's education. You know, they're involved in their children's education and they want their children to do well. And when we come with that mindset as educators, we view parents differently. We make space for the ways that they are able to support their children and we support them 
to support their children in the ways that are able. And we change our mindset about what we think about parents, um, oftentimes to be much more positive, right? So we, we, we have to remove our own uh, implicit bias that we have in terms of the way we're looking at the parents. Exactly. Who determines what factors get on that scale to measure involvement? And that's a big thing. And so one of the things that I call for is community groups. Um, I, um, in my dissertation, I focus mostly on low income African-American mothers and creating community groups where they would come together and they would talk about how they're involved in their children's education. They would create African-American parent networks to build capacity amongst their community, thus translating their cultural capital and their social capital back into academic capital for their children and creating spaces where they can share those resources and talk about those things versus saying, I'm holding a parent university tonight about how you can read to your children at home. Please attend my thing, right? We instead say, these parents are getting together to talk about how culturally they can use their you know, cultural capital and their assets as a family to support their child. As an educator, let's go there and let's hear about what they're doing and how they're networking with each other. And let's see if we can bring any of that back to our school. You know, so it, it's a it's a shift in, in thinking in that sense. So I told you we had to get around. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a thank you. Pl pleasure and honor, Dr. Rachel. Thank you for your, your insight and your wisdom. Uh, we hope you're nothing but the best and we hope you can keep going forward with your your framework that you've developed and, you know, educating the educators. And one more time, can you give us the website so people can visit you and learn more about you and the YouTube channel? Yeah, absolutely. So the website is www.equityteacherleader.com. And the YouTube channel is called Serve, and So if you look that up or you go to my uh, website, there's direct links right there. And there's awesome. also links to um, my published articles and the work that I've done as well that you can check out. Awesome. awesome. I hope you, I'll, I'll let you close it up. Well, you know, for, for everyone who was listening, hopefully it was very beneficial. And we asked and we want to thank Dr. Rachel for taking her time to kind of share about some of the amazing things she is doing. Please make sure you check her website out for information, not just educators, maybe corporate America. You know, if you're listening because we know we, know we send these videos on LinkedIn. Facebook, Instagram, so whoever, wherever you see it, we want to make sure that hopefully this was beneficial and please tune into others uh, again, as we are going to be um, more, you know, trying to highlight different individuals throughout the you know, communities and doing some amazing things. So again, thank you, Dr. Rachel, for your time and for the, some of the stuff that um, there are so many other things she's done that I've, I've kind of worked on. We'll maybe have her in, invite her again for another specific uh, topic that I've, I've kind of personally got to see the magic that she does. So keep up the great work. And we want to say for success in all your future work, Dr. Rachel Mahmoud. And, 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 and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been wonderful. And everybody at Community Warehouse, this is where we educate, learn, and lead. Please do like and subscribe and follow. And we'll see you all next time.